Logan's secret plan to take over the world. We've, we've unearthed it. Take over the world and leave everybody alone. Don't wa If you ever take over the world, don't waste the opportunity to leave everyone alone. <laughs> that's, that's what I would do. I know. It's why leave I, everybody alone. That's why you'd be a great dictator, because I wouldn't even know you were there. Instead of a dark lord, you will set up a king, and all will love me in despair. <laughs> Well, sir, welcome back. Welcome back. We're still drinking this amazing Christine Riggleman Just corn whiskey. Going. I'm going to have a second glass. Please do. Yeah, you, I mean, you weren't under, either I gave you such a, I apologize if I didn't give you a good enough pour the first time, or you really did like it. It was a plenty good pour. I dislike it. Logan approved. I'll finish mine. I'll make it a second. It's got a nice kind of caramelly taste to it, which I always enjoy. The sweetness of the corn comes out. Must be feel pretty good or pretty accomplished to distill your own liquor. Yeah, I mean, it takes so long, too. I mean, how long is this one aged? Do we know? Was it five years? Five years? Four years. Four years. Okay, that's that's on the short Batch side. number one, bottle 254. To make, like, a really solid whiskey, it's, like, usually 10 years aging. So it's something to be proud of if you've managed to stick around for 10 years and create yeah. it. Yeah. Bottled and bond. I remember. I think Matt explained that to us, but I forgot what that yeah. means. I should... I gotta sharpen my skills. So, this is an episode I've been kind of teasing around to do with you. Yeah. It's kind of a discussion. I want to present my qualms with libertarianism to you, even though I identify mostly as a libertarian. Yeah. And People I want often come to me and say, Logan, you're wrong. <laughs> you shouldn't be a libertarian. It's a bad ideology, and here's why. So, I've had to respond to these sort of things before. So, I'm excited to hear your take because I know it's going to be a thoughtful one. Yeah, so I, first I want to – I'll say I think there's two lines of libertarianism. There's main – and I'm going to borrow from Pete Becky because this is kind of stealing from his words. Um, who runs the econ program at George Mason. There's mainstream libertarianism, mm -hmm. which you find on Twitter. And then there's mainline libertarianism, which I think is more – probably Kibbe. It's probably where I fall more. But the mainstream is what you run into more. And I have some real qualms with mainstream libertarianism and – to put it out there, I think – right, I'll, I'll make a bold statement, okay, uh, a tweet that will enrage people. I'll put it here. Libertarianism, mainstream libertarianism is a detriment to liberty at times. And okay. Will, expand on I, that. I'll expand upon that. So I think we – I think libertarianism, when it comes off as extremely – it's not really liberty focus, it's licentious focus or libertine in a way that it wants to be so individual that it wants to strip people of any sense of tradition. It's very Rousseauian. Mm -hmm. I want to be free of all authority in my life, all family structure, all this. Like I want to be my own individual so much that I am isolated. And I find a lot of problems with this, almost to where they want to reject all sense of authority in their life or all sense of anything that helps structure or guide the life. It's a celebration of I can do whatever I want and I feel like this is the mainstream. This runs deeply through mainstream libertarianism. Mm -hmm. And it actually, if you take this all the way, the state loves an individual. Okay. So I'll pause there before I yeah. go any farther. Let you do an initial response to my qualms, or at least what you're hearing. Well, I come think, out of my mouth. you know, what I hear you talking about is sort of the Reason Magazine version of libertarianism, the kind of um, libertine version of libertarianism, where they celebrate all these, you know, excesses of the individualist lifestyle. 
And I definitely have issues with that aspect of it as well. But I think that individualism is incredibly important to liberty. And it's I first and foremost consider myself an individualist before I consider myself anything else. I've often, like when I'm describing what I am to people, instead of saying I'm a libertarian or I'm an anarchist, I'll say I'm a radical individualist. Because I think that's the most important thing. The individual is the basic unit of society. And I think it's really important to be an individual. And that doesn't mean that you're rejecting all authority or all community, but it does mean that you're acknowledging that the the one the individual person is what matters most. Yeah, and I, I remember you, you've said that a lot, and I, I've certainly have pondered that, and I don't disagree. I, on my next, I think my follow up question is that is like the individual, like I think back to economics, like individual yeah. is the it should be what we measure or not maybe not measure the word, but it, it should be the focus of the social science of economics. Yes. But then the, my follow-up question is, do we understand? And I, my, my answer is no. I don't think we understand culturally or even just in libertarian thought as itself. What is an individual? like, Or we don't have a complete understanding of the individual person. What is an individual? That would be my argument. Well, maybe we don't. And I think you know the human being is a complex animal. And we certainly don't understand everything about humans or the way we think or the way we act. And that's certainly true. And, you know, in, in economics, they have a thing called methodological individualism, which I think is very important. And I think that's what you're getting at is where when you're analyzing a situation from an economics point of view, you realize that individuals are the only things that act. They're the only things that take deliberate action to achieve goals. And I think you often get very muddy thinking and very dangerous thinking when you start to talk about like, oh, this country is going to do this, or this religion is going to do this, or this race is going to do this. Like, a race can't act, a country can't act, a religion can't act. Those are kind of abstract ideas. Only a person can act. And so, I like, it drives me nuts when people say, well, like, oh, well, we, meaning America, we should go to war with Iran. Well, what does that mean? Like, America should go to war with Iran. America doesn't exist. Iran doesn't exist. People exist. It's what you're really saying is this: these people over here, these individuals, should take guns and go shoot at these people over there. That's really what you're saying. But you, by saying America should go to war with Iran, you're saying it in a way that sounds nicer and sounds more congenial and doesn't sound like, oh well, that's not so bad, you know. Whereas if you say Joe needs to shoot Ahmed in the face, that sounds a little worse, you know. But it's more accurate. And it's the same thing with immigration. Like we always say, we have a right to protect our borders. Well, what does that mean? Like, who's we? What is our borders? You know, it's it's so vague. It's what it really means is Farmer Joe in Texas has a right to stop Jose from coming across his land. You know, that's that's what it comes down to. Or does he? You know, or is it is it government land? Is it public land? Like, how does that work? Um, when you talk about it in terms of individuals, it's easier to think clearly, in my view. Whereas if you talk about these vague we and our and countries and nations and religions and polit- political parties. You know, that doesn't really mean anything to me. Yeah, I think I agree with that on the point of we often ignore the individual for the collective. And that causes a lot of problems with policy, with how we treat people, with how we it can lead to a lot of bigotry um, or when you just a lot of bad first impressions. When you walk by someone on the street and you judge them based on some collective that you've already grouped them into Um, the. I feel with, with like when we look at the individual, though, especially in I think beyond libertarianism, I think if this is just a part of society, we look at them like you're an individual. We might 
and the, but we kind of ignore like I, I see the individuals almost made I guess three pillars is one mm-hmm. we're an individual person we have our own wants desires value systems etc um, but then we have to say individuals are also communal like we need people definitely and I don't we, think anybody would deny yeah. that and then beyond that we're also creative meaning we want to go and I, I take this is why we need economic freedom we're yeah. creative we want to build something create something to own something that's ours that's why private property is so important that's why entrepreneurship is so important that's why the right to own a business and I feel we maybe we don't reject those next two, the communal and the creative aspect of an individual. Yeah. But we overemphasize the individual so much that we start ignoring this communal aspect. And I see it. I saw it really start playing out this over 2020 as we mm-hmm. all got isolated. We're all sent home. People weren't going to church. People weren't going to their normal dinner parties. People weren't seeing their loved ones. And we got further and further isolated. And how much more easier is it for the state to control us as individuals if we're isolated? That's true. That's a good point. Um, I would ask, let me ask you this. Why are communities important? I think... One, communities create a sense, communities can teach us, or in one, I think communities teach us and instill in us certain values that help us structure our life in a way. Um, what do you mean by us? The members of this of a community. The individuals within yeah, the community. the individuals in the community. Like if I belong, like I think about like my own family. So the family that I grew up in as a child, the Fuse family. When I went off, when I left that family to go off to college or when I enlisted in the Navy, there was things I would enter certain situations where I had to make a decision. Um, My morals were being tested or my belief system was being tested in a way. And a lot of times my decision was based on like, wait a minute, because of where I came from, because I'm a fuse, I don't do that. A short fuse. Yeah. (laughs) Very short fuse. Yeah. Well, Um, the reason I asked that question is like you just said. The benefit of a community is the benefit of the individuals within the community. The community exists in order to benefit the individuals. So communities aren't valuable for their own sake. They're valuable because they're valuable to individuals. Correct. So it still breaks down to individualism being the most important aspect of society. So I I would probably maybe I would reassess my qualms with mainstream libertarianism is that we ignore the importance of community in helping the individual. Yeah. We also ignore the importance of community in combating totalitarianism. Yeah, I think you're right about both of those things. And I think, you know, people have this caricature of libertarians as the kind of Ron Swanson, man in the woods, you know, old man of the mountain type, uh, rugged individualist, or this like Henry David Thoreau, you know, live out by yourself in the wilderness sort of thing. And I really, there's some justification for that stereotype. But it's I funny. Think it I is, like it for TV. It is funny. It's a good, good, funny stereotype. But I think it's it's kind of not that true of most libertarians. And maybe there's some that are like that. But I think we mostly value and recognize the value in, in group activities and communities and subcultures. I, for one, love subcultures. I'm obsessed with subcultures. I think they're so cool. So I think there's some of that. But I, I, I do think you raise valid points on that. And the, the point in which people who are isolated from each other and not banded together can be dominated by a, a government or any kind of force that wants to dominate them is certainly overlooked. And that's a good point you raised there. I, yeah, I also, with that, if we accept that as like, hey, we're overlooking this, I would argue we need to bring back our focus to those or start over, or start focusing more on community building at the local level in our own communities. Mm. Because every time there's a problem in society, and I know I'm just preaching to the choir here, 
culturally and society, societal in society now, we turn immediately to government. All right, we need a new policy. We got to find a politician. Someone's going to run for office and be an angry politician and go to DC and fix this. That is our number one go-to habit, whatever. And we've lost that sense of let's come together and raise the yeah. barn. I've used that example before on here, like the Amish do. Let's come together and build a new school. Schools weren't started by the government. Schools nope. were like, nope. hey, we got to find a way to to educate our children. Like, let's just all throw money in a pot and we're going to hire <sighs> a sweet little lady down the street to teach all our kids because it's more convenient. And then eventually somehow we got the government involved in it all. I guess, like, I think you're right on all those things. And I think maybe the reason that we tend to overemphasize the individual is because there's so much emphasis on the other side towards the community. And it's, it's often used as a tool to try to um, undermine libertarianism and say, oh, well, you're just selfish and you need to do what's best for the group. You shouldn't do what's best for you. You should do what's best for the group. And that kind of thinking leads to really bad outcomes in my view. And so I think that maybe that's, it's an overcorrection. It's a pushback against that way of thinking. And you brought up Rousseau, which I think is interesting because Rousseau is famous for the social contract. And it's, you know, the idea that, well, we all have to behave in a certain way in order to, you know, because because there's a social contract and we have to take care of the community and we have to take care of the group and we have to subjugate our own kind of individual well-being to the well-being of the group, which I think is very anti-libertarian in, in nature. And so I think there's a lot of pushback against that sort of thing. And I guess a question I would ask you is, do you think that there's a distinction between the interests of a group and the interests of the members of the group? I think that a group... I think familial, community, um, familial and communal bonds can become tyrannical just like the state. Yeah. Um, I, so, yes, a group can. It's group. A community is not perfect anyway. It can become just as tyrannical as a state. I think to a story, my mom used to have this coworker who was Indian uh, from the country of India, not Native American. Yeah. Um, she worked with my mom in the accounting department, loved her job. She had an arranged marriage. But her husband was living in Florida, and because of the range of marriage, they didn't really know each other. So she was living up in Maryland, where my mother is. And at a certain point in time, she was beckoned to Florida to help care for her elderly mother-in-law, who she didn't even know. And I was like, there are some crazy communal uh, traditions that are tyrannical, that force this woman out of oh, like, yeah. a job in a community she loved. Instead of working, she did not have no desire to be a stay-at-home caretaker for a mother-in-law she didn't know. That would be an extreme example of a tyrannical community. So the community can be tyrannical. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the big misconception that a lot of people have, and that it's often used as a weapon, is this idea that there's such a thing as a group interest or a group, you know, you have to do, this may be bad for you, but you have to do it because it's good for the group. And it's like, there's no distinction in my mind between what's good for the group and what's good for the members of the group. But leaders of groups or, you know, authority figures will often kind of use that line of reasoning to try to dominate others and say, yeah, I know this is bad for you, but it's good for the family. You got to do what's good for the family. And it's like, well, if it's bad for everybody in the family, then how is it good for the family? Yeah. You know, that doesn't make any sense. But people often use that line of reasoning to try to dominate others. And so that's I think there's pushback on that, which is another reason why we tend to gravitate. Yeah, it's like an equal and opposite reaction. And I think, well, would you say, though, that when these people in society are always pushing like, oh, you need to do better for the group or for society, they're talking in terms of like politics or the state. Like, yeah. are we've we've eroded. I'm confident in this, that we've eroded all these communal aspects that 
our attachment to to family and church and community so much that our only attachment is now to the state. It's like in the 2012 Democrat National Convention, I won't get it right, but there was some like government or the party. They said something very creepy is the only thing or is like is the one place we all can share or belong to. It was a very creepy statement. Yeah, this is a great point. And I think, you know, this is a book I wanted to write years ago and I never actually wrote, but about how the state kind of erodes these community bonds because if you can depend on the state, you don't need to depend on other things. Like it's, it's a little bit perverse to think about because it's all about like you being in danger and you depending on other people to bail you out. But it used to be the case without a big government. Like if I'm going to take a risk, you know, I have to, and it doesn't work out. Who do I depend on? I depend on my family. I depend on my friends. I depend on my church. I depend on my neighbors, you know, and if I don't have strong relationships with all those people, I can't afford to take a risk because if it goes bad, I got nobody to bail me out. Now you can take a risk and if it doesn't work out, you just go to the government and they'll give you welfare and they'll give you unemployment and it'll be fine. And so you don't need, you're not forced to, by necessity to have those bonds. There's no community. incentive There's to There's no go. incentive to have this community. You can move to New York by yourself and say, well, if it doesn't work out, I'll just go on unemployment. You know, you used to not be able to do that. You say, well, if you go to New York by yourself without any friends or family or neighbors or church, what are you going to do if it doesn't work out? Nothing. You're, you're screwed. So... Um, you know, on the one hand, I guess it's nice to have the freedom to do those sort of things. But on the other hand, it means that you don't have an incentive to build those relationships with your family and your friends and your church and your neighbors that you used to have. And so the result is a more atomized community that is not. So it's it's sort of the paradox you're talking about. It's like the, the big government that is collectivist and that says we all have to care about each other actually results in nobody caring about each other and actually results in everybody being atomized instead of having these close-knit communities. And the, um, I feel... We're, 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 look, we're in an age now where the government's growing like larger than we ever imagined. At the, the heyday of the Tea Party movement, we were upset about $8 trillion in debt. Mm. We're $27 trillion in debt. Yep. The Leviathan's only growing. And we're becoming more and more isolated where we need these groups or these communities. We're a lot stronger together in these communities than, and they should be voluntary communities, pushing back against the state. The state is a rival of the church. The state is a rival of the neighborhoods. Yes. And they don't they don't mix well. This is the great point. You know, it's the, people act as if the state is a proxy for community. They say that, oh, well, we the st- we need the state because we all have the social contract and we all have to take care of each other and we all are dependent on each other and we all have to, you know, uh, make sure you're your brother's keeper and those type of things. But the state does the opposite of that. The state, is, you're right, the state is a rival to those communities and to those relationships. So I'm with you on that. I'm with I, you on all this stuff. We're basically in agreement. We are in agreement. I just feel they're the mainstream libertarianism of Twitter where everyone's a smoke weed, which no offense anyone does that, but I feel like that's all they're celebrating or prostitution should be legal. Like there's a lot more to libertarianism. And if we really are serious about pushing back and fighting against this growing Leviathan, we actually have to dive deeper into the philosophy of, I don't want to just isolate, like, it's just like libertarianism is the philosophy, is no, the I, theology of everything. I think that's something we try to do at Free the People is talk about the importance of community. Yeah, Kib- I feel like Kibbe's the whole mission of Kibbe like, is, The word communitarian is, is yeah. big around here. So yeah, I totally agree with that. Um, and it's one of the problems I have with the kind of Reason Magazine version of libertarianism because I used to subscribe to the print magazine and I don't anymore because every issue was like, take drugs and have lots of crazy unprotected sex. And I'm like, I don't want to do those things. You know, I don't find that rewarding. And like, it's one of the hardest things to explain to people when you're trying to talk about libertarianism, the distinction between whether something should be legal versus whether it's a good idea. 
and like I think drugs should be legal. I think prostitution should be legal. I think all this stuff should be legal. Doesn't mean I think it's a good idea. I think lots of things that are legal are bad ideas and you shouldn't do them. But that doesn't mean that you should make them illegal because when you make something illegal, you're you're punishing people for doing something that really doesn't hurt anybody else. You're you're putting them in jail. There's innocent bystanders who always get caught up in it, always get hurt. And so like that should be a different conversation. Whether something should be legal is not the same conversation as whether something's a good idea. I have these thoughts about abortion all the time. I'm still trying to figure out what I think about abortion because I think abortion is wrong. I'm against it philosophically. But I don't know that it should be illegal. I'm not 100% on that because I'm not sure what the benefit of that is. If putting people in jail, putting doctors in jail, putting women in jail, I'm not 100% sure that that's a good thing. And so, you know, these are difficult conversations and they're more complex than just saying, well, that's wrong, make it illegal. This is right, make it legal. But it's one of the most tricky things we have to explain as libertarians to non-libertarians about, well, just because we think something should be legal doesn't mean we approve of it. That's a good point. And if you're always focused on making something illegal, A, using the state, you're never actually having the moral argument or saying yeah. why why you shouldn't do it in the first place. And if you're not going to change someone's heart, what's the point of making it illegal? Right. Um, and then they're just going to find a black market will arise because there's still a demand. You've lost the battle. You're just losing it's sort it of a, a metaphysical way. argument to be like, well, do we want people not to do this stuff because they're afraid of going to jail? Or do we want them not to do this stuff because they think, you know, it's wrong or we shouldn't do it or I, I don't want to do it? You know, there's that's worth a conversation worth having is there's a benefit to having people who voluntarily don't want to do things for positive reasons rather than I don't want to do it just because I'm afraid I'm going to get punished. You know, it's that kind of moral instinct towards good versus just like aversion to fear, aversion to punishment. Those are two different things. And maybe that's a little too lofty and philosophical for politics, but I think it's worth thinking about. Absolutely. So good conversation. I'm still going to ponder this, poke my holes in poke your holes in libertarianism to see, uh, I've got to pursue there. There's ideology. I don't want to have an ideology, right? You don't. And I no. an ideology is I want to conform the world to fit my preconceived truth. Okay. A philosophy is I'm pursuing truth. There is truth, and I have to go discover it. Yeah. Maybe I can know it. Maybe I won't. But I feel like we're in an ideo- ideological age where, where everything we come across in the world is, it must fit into my my box of how I preconceive truth. Um, I don't really, that doesn't attract me. Okay, fair enough. So I'll question everything. Question everything for sure. Be Socratic. Don't be platonic. Definitely not. Cheers, sir. Cheers. Big words. Oh.